Before I begin the talk tonight, I am very happy to announce <laughs> that by the time the talk is ended, <laughs> the water will be on and strong and very hot. So I know this is probably what one wants at this moment even more than a talk. <laughs> but also, you know, remembering that the... Um, the maintenance guys uh, have been outside for probably six hours today in the cold. And um, while we're here listening to the talk, they're going to be going around and flushing the toilets and, you know, <laughs> making everything perfect so that when the talk is over, you'll be able to run into the bathrooms. <laughs> And I'll talk, try to talk fast of it. <laughs> a young samurai warrior came before a Zen master and asked respectfully, Master, teach me about heaven and hell. The master looked at him in disgust and said, Teach you about heaven and hell? You're such an ignorant fool, you can't even keep your own sword from rusting. How dare you suggest you could even understand anything I might have to say? The Zen master continued adding insult to injury, while the young swordsman, to his surprise, found his respect for the aged teacher turning to righteous anger. His pride fueled his indignation, insisting that no one, master or not, had the right to insult a samurai and live. At last... Teeth clenched, his heart pounding in his chest. The warrior drew his sword and furiously lifted it above his head. As he prepared to strike the old man down, the master looked straight into his eyes and said, That's hell. <laughs> At the peak of his anger, the samurai realized that this was indeed the lesson he had been seeking. The Zen master had introduced him to his own personal hell, a kingdom ruled by ego and rage. Profoundly humbled, the young man covered up his sword and fell to his knees before this great spiritual teacher. Filled to the brim with love and gratitude, he looked up into the old man's wrinkled face. His eyes filled with tears, and he could not find the words to express what was in his heart. Ah, said the master, gazing down at him, and that's heaven. We can long to know how things are, and we can read about it, and we can ask questions, and we can explore these things through thinking. But it's only through being from moment to moment with ourselves in a prolonged way, the way that we are in this retreat, that allows us to see very directly that allows us to develop insight. You know, the example of the samurai is understanding something intuitively, and that is what insight is. It's seeing ourselves differently than we do, seeing ourselves more clearly, seeing ourselves more deeply. Insight is illuminating and transforming 
and enlightening. It reveals what is what. It actually reveals what has always been there. But that which we have ignored or denied or has been covered over by something or another, and so we haven't seen it directly and clearly, enough for it to make a difference in our lives. Insight is an intuitive understanding regarding the nature of things, the nature of ourselves, the nature of other beings, the nature of this world. And it's as if a light bulb goes off over our head, even like those comic strips where there's a light bulb when uh, someone gets something. It's kind of like that when there's an insight on some level or another, sometimes a dim light, (laughs) and other times a really strong stream of light. Now it's seeing something differently. It's a coming together. In some way, it's a completion. And the thing is, is that it's always fresh and new. Every time we see something differently, it's as if it's never happened to anyone else before. You know, it's always new. We're always pioneers on this path, although we have this lineage behind us. And it is a profound and ancient lineage. You know, and it's heartening to know that other people have walked the same path and have truly come to enormous happiness and peace. But at the same time, each one of us has to do this on our own. And so every time there's an insight, it's not as if it's, oh, I should have gotten that many years ago kind of thing. It's always new. It's always as if it's for the first time for any human being. I used to know uh, this um, older nun who was a true contemplative lived a truly, deeply contemplative life. And we would get together and talk about our various paths and what we were learning and what we were sharing. And, of course, you know, there was more that was similar, even though she was a Catholic nun and I had been on the Buddhist path for some time. There was more that was similar that we could share, of course, than than that which was different. And... One day she was speaking with me, and she said, um, you know, we were talking about um, sharing these things. And she said, isn't it every time you share these things, isn't it like the revelation all over again? And I thought, well, maybe for you it is. (laughs) I'm just trying to do my best. But... (laughs) But it it was very inspiring to hear that. It was very inspiring that whatever one speaks about when it has to do with the truth, whether it's the subject that one has talked about endless amounts of time, every time, it's as if one is speaking about it for the first time. You know, because it's the truth. So it's always new. It's always fresh. It can't be repeated, even if we hear it in that way. And it sounds like that. It can never be repeated. Insights imprint the heart with the Dharma. The Dharma meaning the truth of things. Insights imprint our hearts with the truth of things. And what happens is the psyche automatically reorganizes itself in some way. 
there's more fresh air, there's more spaciousness, there's more of a sense of ease or relaxation. Insight cannot be forced or made to happen no matter how much we want it to happen. Sometimes we can sit with a sense of clenched teeth and think, you know, why aren't I getting an insight right now? I'll bet you the person next to me is getting 20. Or, you know, we can sit down and say, well, I'd like to, you know, this this sitting, I, I'd like to get a number of insights. You know? And if not this sitting, you know, by the end of the retreat, I'd, I'd certainly like, you know, a number, maybe modest number, maybe five or so. You know, deeply transformative, but, you know, a modest, a modest number, you know. And we can, we can really get fixed on this idea. Uh, and because of this, find ourselves quite discouraged at times. And I think at these times, it's good to ask one of my favorite teachers, Tofu Roshi, what to do, <laughs> otherwise known as Susan Moon. Dear Tofu Roshi, I'm desperate. I've been meditating for 10 years now, and I still haven't experienced enlightenment. At least I don't think I have. I went to my family doctor for a complete physical checkup just to make sure there was no psychological problem. He says I'm the picture of health, except for my planter's warts, and he doesn't see why they would stand in the way of enlightenment. (laughs) Recently, I returned from a month-long meditation retreat. I thought by the time it was over, I would surely experience the big E. People were calling out all around me, moaning and exclaiming with transcendent rapture. But I just sat there trying not to scratch. (laughs) Roshi, what if they're all faking? What if it's just a big hype? Should I fake enlightenment too? Then I'd get some respect. But luckily for me, I had a religious upbringing, and I know that if I simulated enlightenment, I wouldn't be cheating anyone but myself. After the retreat was over, I asked the guy who had been sitting next to me, are you enlightened? He replied coolly, that's a private matter I prefer not to discuss. (laughs) Another time I asked some people in my sangha if they'd be interested in us forming an ongoing support group for pre-enlightened beings. (laughs) But they looked at me like I was suggesting we start a massage class for people with contagious skin disease. Oh, Roshi, is there really such a thing as enlightenment? And if there is, why don't I ever have it? Yours, Virginia. (laughs) Dear Virginia, yes, Virginia, there is enlightenment. You will know it when you have it. But let me tell you something in confidence. People who do experience enlightenment are often disappointed to discover that their lives are just as dreary afterward as they were before. (laughs) No big deal, as they say. When you are enlightened, you will realize that you already realize that which you will realize when you are enlightened. (laughs) Insight truly is... A grace. It's not something that we can force or compete with. But it is something that we can make room for inwardly. You know, through our attentiveness 
and through our receptivity and through the willingness to be less and less preoccupied. The receptivity so that we can receive something new, something fresh, something alive, something true. And that's where it truly is a grace that cannot be planned upon. We can cultivate the conditions that lead to insight. But in terms of something coming together, it's something that happens truly on its own. All insight, any insight that one happens to receive is useful in one way or another. And at the same time, there are different kinds of insights. There is psychological insight, and there is what might be called universal insights. And, of course, we can see that the psychological insight is on a little bit of a different level than a universal insight. But at the same time, any insight that comes is great and a grace and is not to be disdained. So just to begin talking a little bit about the psychological, what I mean by this is insights that have to do with this life, with this particular karma that we're experiencing, with this particular conditioning that we've been sitting with all week. Different insights for different people, depending on our history, you know, depending on our childhood, how we were brought up, depending on our personality, what our personality is like because of our character, you know, we all need to see different things. And so the insight has to do with seeing into conditioning, seeing it in a way that we've never seen before. You know, not in terms of, oh, yeah, 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 but really in a very vivid and light way so that it doesn't have the same pressure to it anymore. It's insight that is seeing into what's happening now because of experiences in the past, how we are now because of the past. So it has to do with our habits and our tendencies, our attitudes and our assumptions. It has to do with seeing the ways that um, our natures are contradicting themselves, you know, that we say we want one thing and then we're going in the absolute opposite direction of that. Or we have a particular aspiration and goal, but we can never quite get to it. And so understanding ourselves more deeply. It's how we relate to ourselves and others, understanding our particular psychological makeup and exploring the tension that we may carry around with us. Now, just sometimes being aware of how we hold our faces or how we hold our bodies, how we walk through a room can lead to insight. I remember at a certain point noticing how I held my jaw. This was some years ago. I was observing my father, and I noticed him holding his jaw in a certain way. And I thought, hmm, boy, that looks very stiff and very tense, and, um, you know, it looks like he's not having such a good time. And it looks like he's really pondering or thinking about something. 
And then I noticed the same jaw in myself at some point. I noticed I was thinking about something quite intensely, and my jaw had assumed the same semblance. I had picked this up. And so practicing was great insight because I could practice just relaxing my jaw. Life improved pretty quickly, just (laughs) relaxing my jaw. Also just noticing our psychology, being aware of our psychology. When When I first began sitting, I noticed that there were a lot of different dialogues happening with a number of people in my life, basically telling them why I was upset with them. And after a while of recognizing that these dialogues were happening and realizing, of course, that they weren't there in front of me and that, you know, I had to just simply notice the, the um, upsetness or the anger. I also gained some insight into the fact that one of the reasons I was feeling the way I was was because I wasn't directly speaking to the people that I was upset with. You know, so I was feeling manipulated and taken advantage of, but of course no one ever knew it. Yeah? So it was developing a way to speak directly and yet kindly. Yeah? And so to see into that certainly alleviated the inner torment and holding all of that, that upsetness in, in the form of dialogue. Self-knowledge is noticing our inclinations, noticing what we lead with, in a sense, kind of what our main tendencies are. Noticing if our tendency is towards clinging or, or craving. There's an example of this in some of the commentaries about one walking into a room, like walking into the meditation room, someone who has a strong tendency towards uh, craving or greed, walking into a room like this, and noticing what one likes about the room. You know, kind of having a general feeling of everybody's pretty okay. I like everybody pretty much. They're probably okay. Um, Looking around and noticing, oh, that's a cushion that I really want. How can I get that? How do I arrange to bring this home with me so I can always be this comfortable? Um, You know, noticing what one likes. Another tendency might be walking into the very same room and just having this general sense that people don't like you. You don't, you don't know anybody. You haven't talked to anybody. But of course, you know, I mean, nobody, of course nobody likes me. And so, so kind of leading with this sense of aversion, you know, or walking into the room, another form of aversion, and immediately thinking um, critical thoughts about others. I don't like this. I don't like that. You know, why in the world don't her socks match her outfit? You know, I mean, just, just like this constant critical kind of thinking, yeah? And walking in and, and thinking that everybody is the same way, you know? And yet, it's a tendency. It's a tendency. And then the, the third tendency is someone who walks in a room and walks out and doesn't even notice. You know, it's, it's all a daze. It's all confused. So someone says, well, what happened in the room? Well, I don't really know. You know, I didn't really see anybody. How many people were there? There could have been three. There could have been 100. You know, I didn't really notice. So noticing if there's this feeling of being dazed or perplexed. And, of course, to not 
identify with this, but it helps to notice what we lead with in life. You know, thinking that all of us are the same, and of course, it's how things are. But instead, seeing it as our personal psychology can sometimes be enormously helpful in terms of seeing it differently as something we can see and then um, explore different ways of being. Looking, how do I relate to things when I'm hurt? What happens when I get hurt? And what happens to all beings getting hurt in some way? I mean, emotionally hurt. Someone says something um, unthoughtful or difficult to us or, or just um, not even, you know, something very kind, but it hurts us in some way. We feel hurt, yeah? And it's, it's the most common of human experiences. The thing is, is that we all react differently when we find ourselves hurt, yeah? We all react differently to that. And so to notice what our reactions are is very, very helpful. Noticing if we pretend that we're not hurt. You know? We try to just pretend it didn't happen. Noticing if right after we find ourselves hurt, we get angry. You know, We start blaming immediately the person who did this to us, whether they necessarily meant it or not. It becomes really big. Maybe we react by immediately criticizing ourselves. I deserved it, yeah? Even if it was completely just totally unthoughtful. I deserved it. Yeah, we kick into that. Maybe we withdraw. Maybe we worry. Maybe we fall into anxiety. You know, we move into a place of anxiety after we've been hurt. And to notice, to be aware of our reactions gives us different options then we can notice that it's a reaction that's occurring. It's not the only way to go. We can hold it very gently with compassion, and then something can shift, something can change. We don't have to live our whole life nourishing hurt and being lost in the reaction. How do I react when things are difficult? You know, to look at this as well, because we all react differently. Do I immediately judge myself when things are difficult and think that I did something wrong you know, when something happens? You know, maybe, maybe you even notice you took responsibility for the water today not, not happening or whatever it might be. or you know, just, just kind of concern, this over-concern. But what, what happens when things are really difficult in my life? You know, and just to be aware, just to notice the mechanism. What's the immediacy of the reaction? Because then we have a chance to be with that reaction with more grace, with more compassion, with more skill, and find perhaps another way of being, or at least experiment a bit with other ways of being until we find our way to being able to respond with greater wisdom and compassion. Seeing ourselves clearly this arena of self-knowledge, of psychological insight, certainly includes accepting what we see. You know, certainly includes being on a path of embracing what we see. Because in devoting ourselves to a path of self-knowledge, we will see an awful lot. And it really requires so much from us. To just simply acknowledge is sometimes so painful and so difficult. 
And so to not stop at mere acknowledgement, acknowledgement being as important as it is, but to take the next step into loving kindness and grace and acceptance, really being able to practice making room for the difficult within us, making some space for that which we see within us. There's a poem by Kabir. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I am greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I am proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. So great compassion for what we see is the only way to be. There is another kind of insight. This has to do with that which affects all beings and not just our personal reality. It's universal insight or impersonal insight. It's really the larger picture. And we need to see the small picture. And we get ourselves in trouble if we try to transcend the small picture without any dedication to it at all. And at the same time, as we practice, our interest grows in the larger picture as well. Vipassana means to see into things the way they are. Someone just told me that the first meditation class they went to 15 years ago, they came in and the teacher was saying that practice has to do with seeing things the way they are. And she felt so heartened. She thought, oh, you know, it's not just about getting calm. It's not about transcendence. It's not about trying to pretend that my life isn't the way it is. No, it's seeing things the way they are. It's seeing the truth of things. And there was delight in this. And, you know, this, this sense of really wanting to embark on a path where we're dedicated to seeing the truth of things, to seeing things as they are. Not what should be or could be, but as they are. This kind of insight is that which connects us regardless of our personal history. It's that which all beings share, and we share this with one another. The psychological insight, you could say, is what makes us different from one another. And you know, there can be a lot of richness and fun in that, in our psychologies being different. You know? It really can be so creative, that creative tension of not walking around and everyone, you know, psychology being the same way. I didn't think that would be all that interesting. You know, but everybody being somewhat different. You know? And so um, instead of being afraid of that, seeing it, I think, in, a, in as creative way as we possibly can. But sometimes, you know, too creative and too much tension. And the, the rub is a lot. And recognizing as well that there is this bigger picture that we can come in contact with. 
The universal is what makes us the same. And we do develop more and more interest in this human being insight. You know, it's kind of like we're moving from self-knowledge to human being knowledge. We have to start with self-knowledge. But then just quite gradually, we move into um, this ancient knowledge of what it is to be a human being, to suffer and to wake up out of suffering. And it is indeed a gradual growing into. It's insight into the laws of nature. This leads to an unconditioned peace, which comes about by understanding the nature of conditions. It's really a funny thing. By understanding the nature of conditions, we can grow into an unconditioned peace. But this is where it's very much comes out of understanding rather than trying to jump over anything. It's attempting to understand the conditions in life. What happens in life? How phenomena works? You know, the conditions of thoughts and feelings and sensations in ourselves. The conditions in everyone else being the same. And understanding the nature of conditions allows us to break free from conditions if the depth of our understanding is enough. So this is our path, is allowing the depth of our understanding to be so deep that it's transformative, that it's not just thinking about it. It's not leaving it on the particular one dimension of thought, of thinking, but it's bringing a deep interest, a deep inquiry, you know, a heartfelt inquiry and interest into our day, this moment, to truly see what is what for all human beings, to truly see into the nature of thoughts, of emotions, of sensations. Vipassana in a kind of a classical sense means seeing into the three characteristics of existence, or the three characteristics of all conditions, which include (coughs) dukkha, anicca, and anatta. Dukkha meaning instability or unsatisfactoriness, anicca meaning impermanence, and anatta meaning selflessness. Everything arising, all thoughts and emotions being related to as conditions, what happens is that we mistake appearances for ultimate reality, and then we cling to that which cannot be clung to. I mean, certainly it can be clung to, but the result is not so great. So understanding that the clinging is where the suffering comes in. Dukkha means incapable of satisfying. And as one of my teachers said, a constant squeeze. Mahabua, one of my teachers in, um, in Thailand, used to call dukkha a constant squeeze. But it's, it's that which is incapable of lasting satisfaction. It doesn't mean that there isn't enormous pleasure in this world and that 
everything is not incapable of satisfying us because certainly a good relationship is very satisfying. Great relationships in our life in general are very satisfying. Really wonderful work is satisfying. Yeah? I mean, there's so many things in this world that are satisfying. But what's meant by dukkha is that which is incapable of lasting satisfaction, of enduring satisfaction. And incapable is interesting because sometimes we get mad at the way things are or we get angry at the world thinking it should be other than the way that it is. When if this, we take on this defini- definition of incapable of, you know, it's, it's totally without blame. It's really just seeing laws of nature at work. When we're out of step with the laws of nature, there is difficulty, there is angst on some level or another. When we are in harmony with the laws of nature, there is much more harmony. There is much more of a possibility of real peace. The recognition of dukkha is the pathway to its end. In seeing dukkha, we can stay with it enough to recognize that it's the grasping onto that brings about the angst. That if we can allow things a little bit more to be as they are from moment to moment, being aware of the tendency to reach out, grasp onto, fixate onto, then we begin to see the way out. So much in our life we're trying to wiggle around dukkha in 10 million different ways, and many of us are quite skillful at it. We're trying to get around. We're trying to avoid or escape. And we come into a situation like this, and there's not much else happening other than the sitting and the walking. So here we are, and the invitation is to be able to see it more clearly, to be able to experience conditions as they are a little bit more clearly. In acknowledging dukkha, it allows us to be much more sensitive and aware of others because we also recognize that it's not personal, it's not ours, and that this entire planet is subject to dukkha. So because of this, inevitably, the heart opens and there is a greater sense of compassion. Someone once said, how vexed is the most fortunate of beings? And this is what we see. Remembering, however, that this is a beginning point. It's not an end point. Now, it's seeing dukkha so that we can be free from dukkha. It's not seeing dukkha so that we can suffer more. It's seeing dukkha so that we can acknowledge it so completely that it doesn't have its hold over us anymore. And we begin to understand it profoundly. We begin to understand the grasping mind, and we begin to relax back into things as they are. Maybe we have one moment of real relaxation. No dukkha. No? Maybe we, we have one moment. Sometimes people come to retreats because of one moment of peace. Oftentimes at, in um, Cambridge, where we have weekend retreats, um, people will sit a whole weekend And at the end, of course, as many of you here know, we have a go-around and everyone will speak about their experience. And at times, depending on the retreat, a number of people 
in the go-around will say, I had one moment of peace after lunch. You know, and I'm coming back. You know? That one moment was so wonderful, was so free. You know, and how did it come about? It came about because that one moment, one wasn't grasping, one wasn't wanting, and one wasn't craving. One was actually content with things as they are. Yeah. And not thinking that conditions will make us happy in an ultimate way. Not thinking that our thoughts are going to make us happy no matter how wonderful or terrible they are. Not thinking our emotions are an ultimate destination no matter how wonderful the emotion may be. Over and over again, learning that all happiness lies in awareness, not in conditions. In sustaining our attention as well, we see impermanence a little bit more clearly. We see this body and mind in continual change. And we see that it's not so personal. When we see that it's not so personal, the mind begins to relax and the heart begins to expand. And again, we tend to not cling so much because we're a little bit less enchanted, a little bit less enchanted, thinking that everything can last. Sometimes we have this understanding, of course everything's going to change, but not this. Just not this, not this one wonderful um, thought that I'm having or, or one wonderful situation or whatever it might be. Yeah. And the law of impermanence actually does reign supreme. So we understand the bigger picture in, in life. Not that, of course, it isn't very necessary and positive to um, live a life of commitment, commitment to relationship, commitment to forms in our life. A commitment to a variety of different kinds of work that we want. You know, it doesn't mean a life of non-commitment. It just allows us to see into the fact that whenever we try to hold on to anything, the result is not what we want. We try to hold on because we think the result is going to be positive. We think it's possible on some level. And over and over again, seeing this, that it doesn't lead where we want it to go, leaves us with this sense of disenchantment, and then easier to let go, easier to let be, easier to find our contentment in the present moment. We also notice selflessness, or anatta. We begin to see that there is no sense of a separate self that is unchanging. There is not that which is truly separate. It's only an appearance. So we begin to see in substantiality, we begin to see for ourselves the emptiness, the non-solidity of thoughts and emotions. It's so freeing to see this. I mean, initially we hear this and it sounds like a bummer, but as we see more and more, it's actually enormously clarifying to Notice that whatever thought is happening, whatever emotion is happening, it's not solid. It's not self. It's not who we are. This leads to a sense of less identification with our thoughts and emotions. 
and it leads us to that which is real. Ramana Maharshi said, When we stop regarding the unreal as real, then reality alone will remain, and we will be that. When we stop regarding the unreal as real, then reality alone will remain, and we will be that. So in letting go of identification with the insubstantiality of thoughts and emotions, we give ourselves a chance to sense reality, to glimpse reality, to actually to be reality. We open to a life without separation, without a sense of self and other, of us and them. The illusion of there being a separate self tends to dissolve and to melt. It's not that we forget our names. It's not that we don't come when called. But the suffering aspect of it leaves. You know, that which is suffering in it leads. That sense of having to keep ourselves separate, maintain ourselves, our sense of ego in some separate way, begins to dissolve, quite gently begins to melt And we understand that all our personally centered thoughts and emotions are limiting, not wrong or bad or anything like that, simply limiting. Out of deep insight comes non-attachment. And out of non-attachment comes liberation. These characteristics of existence characteristics of all conditions are not the ultimate truth. We need to see them in order to see into the ultimate truth, but not to mistake them for the ultimate truth. They're not an end in themselves. They're actually doorways, entrees into. Nisargadatta Maharaj said, the real world is beyond our thoughts and ideas. We see it through the net of our desires, divided into pleasure and pain, right and wrong, inner and outer. To see the universe as it is, you must step beyond the net. It is not hard to do so, for the net is full of holes. We step beyond the net in refusing to be deluded by the seeming solidity and reality of our thoughts and emotions. This is how we step beyond the net. Each of the characteristics is a door into that which is without measure, into the unoccupied, undistracted heart. And let me just finish by reading you something by Ajahn Chah. The Buddha taught us to lay everything down, not like a cow or a buffalo, but knowingly with awareness. In order for us to know, he taught us to practice much, develop much, rest firmly on the principles of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and apply them directly to our own life. From the beginning, I have practiced like this. In teaching my disciples, I teach like this. We want to see the truth not in a book or as an ideal, but in our own minds. If the mind is not yet free, contemplate the cause and effect of each situation until the mind sees clearly and can free itself from its own conditioning. As the mind becomes attached again, examine each new situation. Do not stop looking. Keep at it. Drive the point home. 
Then attachment will find nowhere to rest. This is the way I myself have practiced. If you practice like this, true tranquility is found in activity in the midst of sense objects. At first, when you are working on your mind and sense objects come, you cling to them or avoid them. You are therefore disturbed, not peaceful. When you sit and wish not to have sense contact, not to have thinking, the very wish not to is desire. The more you struggle with your thinking, the stronger it becomes. Just forget about it and continue to practice. When you make contact with sense objects, contemplate impermanent, unsatisfactory, selflessness, not self. Throw everything into these three pigeonholes, file everything under these three categories, and keep contemplating. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have openness of heart. May all beings know deep liberation. Let's sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.